0: Eye in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the Murder Chronicles. I'm your host, Carolyn Osorio. You're listening to episode 51 Killer Cousins. Karen Mandick is excited. She clocks out from her shift at the Fred Meyers grocery store. It's 7 p.m., but she's not done for the night. She's over the moon about a gig she's got lined up. It's just a couple hours' time, basically house-sitting, and she'll make $100. Karen's a student at Western Washington University in Bellingham, so money's pretty much always tight which is why she worked part-time at the grocery store. The thing is, Karen is so well-respected at her work that when she asked her boss if she could take a long dinner break, he was like, no problem. The plan was she'd leave the store at 7 p.m. and then return at 9 o'clock to finish her shift. It was a bit of an odd arrangement because she wasn't supposed to tell anyone what she was doing. The security gig was a secret. But Karen could be trusted, even though she didn't like to lie which is probably why she confided in a couple of people about what she was doing for those two hours on that Thursday night. Essentially, she and her roommate, Diane, had been hired to do a couple hours security near the Fred Meyers. It was January 11th, 1979, and each of the women would make an easy hundred bucks. Back then, the minimum wage was $2.90 an hour, so this was definitely an opportunity. Karen Mandick was 22, and her roommate, Diane Wilder, was 27. They both shared a rented house off campus in Bellingham, which is a coastal, laid-back college town. Karen was majoring in dance, Diane, business administration. But by nine o'clock that night, Karen hadn't returned to the Fred Meyer, hadn't clocked back in like she said she would, Her boss was concerned because it really just wasn't like Karen to be flaky at all. But he also had a store to run, and stuff happens. Maybe she got a flat tire or something. So the store manager waited, kept an eye on the clock, and hoped he'd see Karen soon. But when 11.30 rolled around, he knew he had to do something. So he called Karen's friend, Steve, who just happened to work at the college's security office. He was like, hey, do you know where Karen is? I'm worried. Steve didn't. He had no idea where Karen was. But Bill, who also worked security at Western, was a friend of Karen's too. And he had a pretty good idea where Karen was, although he too had been sworn to secrecy. But Bill was instantly worried. And he shared what he knew, that Karen and her roommate Diane had been offered $100 each to help guard the home of a retired executive who was vacationing in Europe. The home was in a secluded, ritzy neighborhood on Bayside Road. Karen had been told that the security system at the ranch-style home, which overlooked the bay, was going to be offline for a repair, hence the two hours. Bill had actually offered to go with, but Karen declined, saying it was okay. That there was a lot of money at the house and discretion was a must. That they were being paid to be discreet and that the fewer people that knew about the lapse in security at the home was better. The two college security guards, who were also friends of Karen's, went over to the house that she shared with Diane. There was no one there. And Karen's car, a 1978 Mercury Bobcat that was green, basically a two-door hatchback, was gone. Maybe this was all just some misunderstanding that they'd gotten sidetracked at that swanky house on Bayside Road. Fortunately, Karen had shared the address with Bill, and so he and Steve drove to the house. And when they got there, it was all quiet. There was no indication that there was anyone in the house and Karen's car wasn't there either. It was after midnight when Bellingham police would receive an urgent call from Steve and Bill who reported 22-year-old Karen Mandick and 27-year-old Diane Wilder as missing. They would quickly explain the security job that Karen and Diane had secretly been hired to work. And another detail, according to Karen, a man named Ken Bianchi had hired them for the job. Ken Bianchi worked security at the Fred Myers. He was employed by Watcom Security. So Bellingham police immediately contacted the owner. They asked the owner of Watcom Security if Ken Bianchi had hired Karen and Diane to provide security at the house on Bayside Road. Ken's boss immediately called Bianchi in the middle of the night. And Ken acted like he had no idea what his boss was talking about. He said he didn't even know Karen that he was actually at the Whatcom County Sheriff's Office reserve meeting that night. You see, Ken was a reservist who was hoping to get hired on at the sheriff's office. But the thing of it is, it was easy for the Bellingham police to refute his story. They wasted no time getting in touch with the commander of the reserve unit, who was like, nope, Ken had specifically asked to be excused that night, saying that he'd been asked by his employer to teach a class elsewhere. And by 2.30 that morning, the Bellingham police were talking to Ken Bianchi. Faced with being caught in a lie, he came clean. Yes, he'd lied about going to the reserve meeting. He'd instead just gone for a night drive in the country. But he was adamant that he didn't know anything about the missing women and had no idea where they could be. Retired Watcom County prosecuting attorney Dave MacAkren says he remembers well being called that night.
1: In fact, i had been informed that uh, Karen Mandick and Diane Wilder, who were two young girls that were college students at Western Washington University, were missing. And the officers were really concerned because they were conscientious people and uh, there was no real reasonable explanation. They were gone.
0: Finding Karen and Diane became their top priority. And Bianchi's admission that he'd lied about his whereabouts was suspicious. But was it really? I mean, how many people make up stories to get out of work? It happens all the time. And it was possible that he didn't know Karen, even though they worked together at Fred Meyers. It was a big store. Their paths could have never crossed. And technically, it still wasn't yet clear if the women were even missing. But it was odd that there was no sign of them or Karen's very distinctive-looking car, that green 1978 Mercury Bobcat. The concern over the missing college students ramped up especially when the women didn't show up for their morning classes. Investigators knew they had to get inside that house on Bayside Road. And the owners, who were in fact vacationing in Europe, gave them permission to do so. But once inside, aside from some wet footprints in the kitchen, there was nothing out of place. The house was empty. By lunchtime, police would make a public appeal through the media, looking for help finding Karen and Diane. They provided photos of the students and also of Karen's car. It wasn't long before an important lead would come in through the tip line. It was around 4.30 that afternoon when a Bellingham resident noticed a car near her home on Willow Road, a green Mercury Bobcat. Instantly, she knew that was the car that everyone was looking for. Because she lived in the neighborhood, she knew there was no reason that that car should have been parked there abandoned, really. This was a rural neighborhood, and the car was parked there in an empty cul-de-sac which was surrounded by woods. There were no nearby homes. Even if the car's description hadn't been breaking on the news, it would have stuck out like a sore thumb in that neighborhood. So she called the police, who rushed to the scene. It became devastatingly obvious. It was Karen's car, because when they opened the vehicle, in the back seat— Two bodies, each wrapped separately in white sheets, had been stuffed inside.
1: They were found in the back of a uh, mercury bobcat, and they both had signs of strangulation by ligature, which means a rope or a wire. And uh, they were clothed, um, their shoes were off.
0: What had happened to these young women? Why did this happen? Questions that rocked this small, tight-knit college town that wasn't immune to crime. But not a shocking double homicide of young college students. The police's only link to the murders was this Ken Bianchi, whose story wasn't adding up. They knew they had to get him into custody, ask more questions. By this time, they had been made aware that Karen was known for her trustworthiness. She wouldn't lie and say that Ken Bianchi had offered her and Diane a security gig if it wasn't true. They needed to get Ken Bianchi into custody, so they enlisted the help of his employer, who was asked to call Bianchi and tell him that he was needed at the Port of Bellingham South Terminal. And it was there that Ken Bianchi was taken into custody without incident on January 12th, less than 24 hours after the murders of Karen and Diane. By then, investigators were digging into Bianchi's background. They learned that he had recently moved to Bellingham from California, that he'd left Los Angeles to reconnect with his previous girlfriend and his son, who'd been born a year earlier. Bianchi had met his girlfriend, Kelly, in California, where they'd both been living at the time, but Kelly had broken off the relationship and moved to Washington, where her parents lived. With a baby to take care of, California was a dead end, and so was Bianchi. In Bellingham, with the support of her parents, she'd be able to provide a more stable home for their son. Eventually, Bianchi would convince Kelly to give him another chance, and so he moved to Bellingham in late May of 1978 to be with them. Ken and Kelly rented a house in Bellingham, and he got a job as a security guard with the Whatcom Security Agency. He'd also been accepted as a reserve deputy for the Whatcom County Sheriff's Department and was also taking police courses. Investigators... Began to piece together what they believe had happened to Karen and Diane. That Ken had approached Karen with the opportunity to make a quick buck. He'd seen her working at the Fred Myers.
1: She knew him from work, and uh, he was a very friendly, very engaging guy. And uh, that is how she she, and she was a very pretty girl. And that's uh, of course why he selected her.
0: Bianchi had created this elaborate story about these rich people being out of town and the lapse in their security system while it was being repaired for a couple of hours. Ken explained that there was a lot of cash in the house. But Bianchi was a predator. This was all an effort to get Karen alone. But he couldn't manage that. Because the thing about Ken Bianchi, he'd be described as good-looking, charming even, but there was something off-putting about him. He didn't seem genuine. Karen sensed this. But she also knew that he was a paid security guard. Obviously, he must be trustworthy if they had hired him. But she trusted her intuition, and she said the only way she'd agree to do the job is if her roommate Diane could come along. Bianchi had agreed.
1: They had a great deal of money in the house, and he needed the girls just for two hours to watch the house with him, and he paid them $100 each, and he would also get $100.
0: But the one thing he absolutely needed from Karen was that she keep the job a total secret. Neither she nor Diane could tell anyone. If they told anyone, it could get around that there was a lot of cash around the house, and then they'd really have a problem. The young women agreed. But what Bianchi hadn't counted on was that Karen didn't keep it a secret. She told a few friends and co-workers about the job with Diane and that she'd been hired by Ken Bianchi and shared the address on Bayside Road. During the interview, Bianchi would deny having anything to do with the rape and murder of Karen and Diane. However, a search of his vehicle would turn up keys to the house on Bayside Road and a scarf that belonged to one of the women. In his home, they would find stolen goods, which was enough to charge him so they can keep him in jail until more physical evidence was processed. Remember, Ken Bianchi was arrested in less than 24 hours after Karen and Diane had been murdered. He was their prime suspect but they also had a lot of catching up to do in trying to figure out who Ken Bianchi was. An instant clue was that he was so fresh to Bellingham, he still had an LA driver's license. Given the double homicide, the brazen act of luring two women to a location that he was obviously connected to through his work, and this elaborate ruse, this vow of secrecy, and then strangling and sexually assaulting two women in one night, police were convinced that this wasn't the first time Ken Bianchi had killed. A Bellingham detective was on the phone with the Los Angeles Police Department that day and was referred to a Detective Sergeant Frank Salerno, who was a member of an LAPD task force that had been assigned to investigate the murders of at least 10 women. From October 1977 to February 1978, the hillsides around Los Angeles had become infamous. Bodies of young women and girls had been discovered naked and posed, with ligature marks around their feet, ankles, and neck. The media would dub the killer the Hillside Strangler. Mysteria would reach a fever pitch when the bodies of five women were found the week of Thanksgiving, and police were stumped by the lack of physical evidence, and then horrified when they realized that the Hillside Strangler was washing the bodies of his victims— in a calculated attempt to remove any physical evidence. And there was something else. It appeared that the Hillside Strangler victims hadn't put up a struggle. Detectives were on edge. They had grave concerns that the killer was a person of authority, like a police officer, or someone posing as law enforcement as a way to con his victims into trusting him. And there was a tightly guarded secret that despite washing his victims, The killer had left behind semen, but the semen left behind on the victims belonged to two different men. Between that and the placement of bruises on the bodies, investigators theorized they weren't looking for one serial killer, but two who were working together. This is extremely rare. Generally, serial killers were outliers who hunted and killed alone. The autopsies also revealed that whoever was killing these women was getting off on sadistic cruelty. The victims were sexually assaulted, tortured, and strangled. Was it coincidence that the Hillside Strangler murders in California appeared to stop at around the same time that Bianchi moved to Washington state? When the Hillside Strangler task force looked up Bianchi's LA driver's license, they noticed that the address he'd listed on the back of it was on the same street as one of the Hillside Strangler victims. They didn't believe this was a coincidence. It was a connection. And by Sunday, January 14th, Detective Salerno and his partner would arrive in Bellingham to see if they could find more connections to the Hillside Strangler case. At that search warrant served at Bianchi's Bellingham home, stolen property was seized from the jobs that he'd been paid to guard, but also a trove of jewelry was found, specifically, Two distinct pieces were identified by the Hillside Strangler detectives as jewelry belonging to Hillside Strangler victims. By Monday, January 15th, Bianchi was in front of a judge being charged with the possession of stolen property. The court was also made aware that he was the prime suspect in the double homicide.
1: And I got a very high bail. And so we held him in bail. Uh, shortly after that, we got reports back from the FBI. And they matched up fibers um, from the search warrant results. We had taken uh, Ken Bianchi's clothing. Uh, we found the name of Karen Mandic uh, in his home, on his dresser. He said that he did not know her. And that we knew that he was lying about that. Um, the FBI matched out fibers from his shirt uh, with uh, the home that we subsequently found the home, and uh, we looked at fibers there. We also found pubic cares that matched his uh, in this home on the stairwell. And so we had a number of things.
0: By then, investigators in Washington state were getting a really clear picture of just how devious and manipulative Ken Bianchi was. Bianchi had posed as a psychiatrist in California, an elaborate ruse to con victims.
1: Had advertised uh, that he wanted to hire a uh, psychologist or psychiatrist and obtained resumes and also transcripts of people who had uh, been trained and had gone through the training and were licensed and he then uh, stole the transcripts of a man by the name of Thomas Stephen Walker and uh, changed his name and put Kenneth Bianchi in it and then had uh, degrees um, uh, actually made uh, wall hangings that showed he was uh, the psychologist and psychiatrist and was a sham ran a sham counseling business so he was an extremely devious guy and I when I looked at the at the case and We looked at the California case. We thought that he probably was a moving uh, person in the abductions, rapes, and killings in California and in Washington.
0: Ken Bianchi had not only wanted to be a police officer in Washington state and California, but also in his home state of New York, where he grew up. After he'd graduated from high school, he'd applied to be a police officer there, but was rejected after failing to pass a psych evaluation. Eventually, Bianchi would move from New York to California, where he would live with his cousin, Angelo Bono.
1: He's a sociopath, and uh, sociopaths are truly the most dangerous people we know in our society. They have no feelings of remorse, nor empathy, uh, nor feeling that Anything that they do is wrong, I, I remember interviewing the, or having an interview uh, of a sociopath who had stolen money from a, uh, an elderly woman and he said, she's holding my money, that money was my money and their whole focus is themselves, it's nobody else and if they hurt someone, if they have to hurt someone um, to gain what they wish to gain, they feel no empathy, they feel no um, uh, guilt. And it's so unusual for the rest of us who have grown up and feel guilt if you, uh, if you cut somebody off in your car and, you know, if you get ahead of somebody in line, uh, you don't do that. That's it's a violent tip of the social mores that we all like to follow. Sociopaths don't do that. And uh, it's hard for the rest of us to understand that.
0: On January 26th, Kenneth Bianchi was formally charged with two counts of first-degree murder. By then, the evidence that they'd amassed against Ken Bianchi made it clear what had happened that night.
1: Took them in, took them downstairs, pulled the gun up from beneath the cushion of the couch, uh, got the girls to lay down and tied them up with pre-cut ropes that he brought with him in a bag. And he had ace bandages he used to gag them with. And uh, he took one girl, moved her to another room, separated the girls, then had them. Uh, the one girl disrobe, raped her, uh, tied her back up. And um, at that point, uh, took the uh, condom and uh, uh, flushed that in the toilet, um, took the other girl in, raped her, uh, flushed the condom in the toilet. And then uh, he strangled both of the girls with the ligatures that, uh, that he had brought with him. And uh, it was a rope. And he had deep furrows on their necks. We could see that they had been strangled with the ligature. I then took uh, all of the, uh, the Bandages, took the ligatures, dressed the girls, put them in uh, their bobcat, and abandoned that in a cul-de-sac that was very close by. He walked back, picked up his security car, and uh, he thought that he had left really nothing at the crime scene. And The only things we found at the crime scene, we found uh, some pubic hair that matched his, but that's not a positive identification. Uh, we also found the fibers in the carpeting, and he, when he backed up the bobcat, he ran over a low retaining wall and it dented uh, the gas tank of the car, and we matched that up. We took the, uh, the top piece off of that small retaining wall, and our officers actually matched the dents in the uh, uh, gas uh, tank with that of the uh, stone from the uh, retaining wall.
0: Bianchi would plead not guilty. But a few months later, he changed his mind. He wasn't pleading guilty but rather not guilty by reason of insanity. He claimed to have no memory of the murders of Karen Mandick and Diane Wilder because he suffered from multiple personality disorder. It was suspected by many that Bianchi had been inspired to float the multiple personality disorder insanity defense after watching the movie Sybil about a young woman who suffered from multiple personality disorder, which stemmed from childhood trauma. In order to move forward with this defense, Bianchi would have to agree to undergo hypnosis. In a video, Ken is in the frame. During the session, Ken's head is bowed, his voice soft and his demeanor seemingly compliant as he talks about his father's death and how his mother was abusive.
2: Left you she
1: taking care of you now that dad's gone?
0: So the audio isn't great, but you can hear the psychiatrist mention Stevie. That's one of Ken's multiple personalities. And a bit of warning: the language in this interview may be upsetting to some, so take care. Listener discretion is advised.
2: For real, she won't let me do anything. She always wants going, I can't be dad. I'm telling her I can't be dad. I'm just a kid. So she's trying to get out of you what she needed out of your dad, huh? Is she, not, is she calming down as far as hitting you and telling you what to do? No, she still hits. She she's tells me everything what to do.
0: Ken tells the psychiatrist about Steve, one of the personalities living inside of him. The doctor would coax Steve out.
2: you motherfucker has been trying to get me to leave him. You can't do that. Fucker. What's your last name? Fuck this and isn't, isn't yours. I do I'm talking to you. What are you writing a fucking book? No, I'm writing a report for the judge. He's asked me to talk to you. Fuck it, ask him then how old I am. I know Ken's 27. Fucking assholes, you know, I I was doing fine, you know. I come out whenever I fucking felt like it. Now you gotta stick your goddamn nose in this whole shit mess. I was doing fine, you know? Now I can't even fucking come out when I want to. What hold you back? What? That fucking asshole. Anything I fucking wanted. I want that fucker out of the way. He's been a hassle to me all my life. How so? He thinks he's so fucking good. You know, one time I used to like that asshole. One time, but he he just fucking won't listen. You know, there's a fucking right way to do things, and there's fucking my way to do things, and my way has always been the right way. Fuck him, you know, nobody's worth it out there. It's just a fucked up world. Fuck him, his mother, too. Fucking cunt. He was quite a bitch, wasn't she? She was a fucking cunt. He still puts up with her shit a little bit, you know? I mean, granted, you know, I can't come out, but I can see what he's doing, and fuck, man, he has got to wise up, you know? He just, I want to get out, I want to stay out, and fuck it. It's all there is to it. I'm just a better person than him. But you did get yourself into a jam. He got himself into a jam. It's I fucking killed those broads. You know, to smarten him up, to show him that he couldn't push me fucking around. Those two fucking cunts, that blonde-haired cunt and the brunette cunt. You're about That's right. Why? Because I hate fucking cunts. Why those two? You didn't even know them. He knew him. Oh, I thought he only knew one of them a little bit. He knew one of them. The other one came along for the ride. Cunts are so fucking stupid, you don't understand that. That's what I'm trying to learn. You just don't fucking understand that. You know, he doesn't either, you know, it. Why don't you explain to me why you did it? Fucking waste. How did you do it? Strangled him. With what? Fucking plain as that. Strangled him with fucking cord. Nothing
0: to it. Did you bring it's breeze. along or was it there? You bet. Nope. Brought it along. Steve also implicates himself and his cousin Angelo Bono in the Hillside Strangler murders in Los Angeles.
2: Yeah, Now he's my kind of person. He doesn't care a fuck about life. It's great. Other people's life. Doesn't give a fuck. That's great. That's a good attitude to have. Has he killed anybody? Yep. How many? He has. Five girls? Did you watch him kill them all? You bet I did. You can be sure that he killed those five? Positively, without a doubt. Did you kill any down there? Yep, I did. How many? Four of them. Makes nine. Anybody else knew that killed anybody else? Fuck no. What a team we were. You sure were? Sounds like you're pretty busy.
0: Bono was older. He would be described as the practical one, quiet, with street smarts. He had a reputation on the street. You didn't want to mess with him. He had a successful car upholstery business. But what these two had in common, they were psychopaths. They lacked a conscience. The only thing that made them feel good was killing women for their own pleasure. Bianchi and Bono would cruise around L.A. posing as undercover police officers using fake badges to gain the trust of their victims, whose ages ranged from 12 to 28. They would place their victims in Bono's unmarked police car, which had been a real squad car at one time, but had been retired and resold. They would take these young women back to Bono's house of horrors, where together they would sexually assault, torture, and strangle them. But their partnership abruptly ended when Bono found out that Bianchi, during their killing spree, had applied for a job with the LAPD, He even went on a few ride-alongs with police officers, where he pumped them for information about the Hillside Strangler. Bono was enraged further when he discovered that not only had Bianchi gone on these ride-alongs, but that he'd actually been questioned in the case. This was too close for comfort for Bono, who threatened to kill Bianchi if he didn't move to Washington State. And Bianchi knew only too well that his cousin would be more than capable of not only doing it, but getting away with it six psychiatrists would examine Bianchi to see if he was fit to stand trial. Two members would be selected by the defense, two by the prosecution, and two by the judge. Ultimately, the judge would find that Bianchi was sane to stand trial, that his claim of multiple personality disorder was just another con, and that the state of Washington would be seeking the death penalty if Bianchi was convicted on the two counts of first-degree murder. But now it wasn't just Washington that Bianchi had to worry about. But also Los Angeles who by then had amassed enough evidence to charge him with 10 Hillside Strangler murders. Bianchi would agree to a plea deal in exchange for a life sentence and avoid the death penalty. He'd have to roll over on his cousin. He'd have to testify truthfully and completely at the trial of Angelo Bono.
2: To even begin to try and live with myself, I have to take responsibility for what I've done.
0: Bianchi would be flown to California where he would sit in jail, awaiting his cousin's trial. But he's still scheming. In 1980, a woman named Veronica Compton began to write to Bianchi in prison. She would tell him that she was a screenwriter and an actress. She even sent him her screenplay about a female serial killer. She wanted him to take a look at it. She also offered to make a movie about him. Bianchi would invite Compton to visit him in jail. He saw Compton as a potential get-out-of-jail-free card. It was easy for him to get her to fall in love with him. The next step was convincing her to murder for him. This was the plan, that Compton would smuggle out his semen from the jail in California, then take it to Bellingham, where she would disguise herself in a pregnancy costume and wig. Once there, she lured an attractive woman to a motel room and attempted to strangle her. The plan involved Compton leaving behind the semen, This whole ruse was in an effort to make it look like the hillside strangler was still on the loose, and the wrong man was behind bars.
1: So the girl went up to a... uh... Motel it was called the Shangri-La in Bellingham, and uh, Veronica Compton got behind a woman, put a ligature around her neck and just about killed her. She had deep furrows on her neck and she had uh, hemorrhaging in her face, we call them petechial hemorrhages. Uh, when you're constricting someone's blood flow and the blood cannot go back down into the, uh, uh, into the, the body, into the system, uh, you'll get uh, sort of bruising that uh, they're just hemorrhaging going into the, uh, into the capillaries. And we could see this in her. She was able, she's a very strong girl, and was able to break away.
0: Veronica Compton was then extradited back to Bellingham, where she was later convicted for attempted murder. She wasn't released until 2003. The trial against Angelo Buono began in November of 1981 in Los Angeles. It would become one of the longest murder trials in American history, taking two years and two days. It would take the jury 10 days to come back with a guilty verdict on nine counts of first-degree murder. The jury would give him life without the possibility of parole instead of the death penalty because they didn't think it was fair that Bono should get the death penalty when Bianchi hadn't. But the judge in the case wasn't happy that Bono's life was spared.
1: I would not have the slightest reluctance to impose the death penalty in this case were it within my power to do so. Ironically, although these two defendants utilized almost every form of legalized execution against their victims, the defendants have escaped any form of capital punishment.
0: During the trial, Bianchi didn't honor the plea agreement of being truthful when testifying. He actually backtracked in his confession, claiming that he was innocent, all in an effort to help his cousin on the stand, which jeopardized part of his plea agreement. He would still be spared the death penalty. But instead of serving his time in California, which is what he wanted, he was shipped back to Washington State. Angelo Bono died from a heart attack on September 21, 2002, at the age of 67. Kenneth Bianchi became eligible for parole in September of 2005, but he was denied. He still remains in prison at the Walla Walla State Penitentiary. The Murder Chronicles is a Pie in the Sky production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We are produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Music by Soundstripe. For Pie in the Sky Media, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. Seeking the truth never gets old.